Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners, to RCR's Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. And remember to give us that feedback on 2057 or on uh, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Uh, so uh, a lot of things have been happening in the last week, but one thing that uh, doesn't stop happening for New Zealand is the engineers. They always get out and do their work and build stuff. And of course, um, it's a vital part of our whole economy, having engineers building stuff. So with that in mind, uh, today we've got a gentleman who has put his life behind the ideas of engineering, especially civil engineering and building stuff. And so his name's John Scarry, and he was trained in the 80s as a um, BE and a Master of Engineering and Civil well, civil Engineering. And he joins us now. John, good g'day, how are you? And uh, thanks for coming on to RCR Greenwashed. And you've got a lot to talk about, I think. Um, I've read quite a bit about you on online and you've sent us some data. You could say you're a fly in the ointment, perhaps, uh, of the engineers institutes uh, of the country, but for good reason. So how would you how would you answer that? Well, um, I can't be the fly in the ointment because that implies that someone is applying some sort of salve to sort out the problems, and they aren't. <laughs> I'm saying the ointment needs to be applied, and I've been saying it for 21 years now, and yet the people uh, that we rely upon to sort out the illnesses within the building and construction sector are not doing it, and it just goes on. And it's not just the last 21 years. If you go back the last three decades or whatever, there have been undeniable problems and they just keep going. And the latest stuff out of MIMBY is really repeating stuff that could have been said in the 1990s and it's just irrelevant. We have very serious problems and they're not being addressed. So this is predominantly in the big construction um, industry like there's a lot in terms of housing, but a lot of your issues seem to stem with into the into the larger commercial type entities. Am I right? Yes, it's right across the structural engineering field, and I tried to draw attention to it when I wrote a report that I called my open letter uh, back in 2002. But the interesting thing was that although officially my warnings were decried in meetings. You would have people saying, oh, you think it's bad in, in structural. You should look at geotechnical or mechanical or whatever. So um, there were some sort of universal truths across all the engineering disciplines to what I was saying. And, um, you know, uh, it, the problems are in house building. Um, leaky buildings were just the tip of the iceberg. It goes into commercial institutional structures, but across into civil and many other aspects of engineering in New Zealand. Yes, yeah, so so just to put me in the picture a bit better, because we're sort of in that um, earthquake zone uh, that not all the world has um, sort of earthquakes the way we can have them, uh, unlike you know, perhaps Europe, some places in Europe, are our building codes more onerous, more, more strenuous than the, than, say, downtown London, for instance? Um, obviously, um, you know, there's actually no problem with the New Zealand building codes. The problem is essentially implementation and oversight. One of the sort of perverse things, though, is that because of the seismic design requirements, we end up with sort of more robust structures. And if we didn't have those seismic requirements, we would have far more problems under gravity loading from serviceability, et cetera. And when I wrote my open letter back in 2002, I did say the major problems I was identifying related to seismic deficiencies. But then in relatively short order, we had two major um, stadium type structures, which were um, basically failing during erection because they could not sustain their gravity loading. 
Right. So there's a couple of uh, key words that I need to sort of, or one key word in particular that I seem to uh, come across in your in your output is the word moment. Tell us what that absolutely means. I know it's a um, it's a um, engineering term. It's certainly not a term that a layman understands. Well, um, actually, um, if you don't know what a Benny moment is, that's good because you can sort of be happy and relaxed and everything. <laughs> and once you study structural engineering and learn what a Benny moment is, life becomes difficult. It's basically a lever action. The fact is that, for example, um, you could lift up a sack of, say, 40 kilograms of meal or cement or whatever. It's quite hard to lift, but you're basically lifting it close to your body. There's not much of a bending moment. But if you had to hold on to a plank and the 40 kilograms was like two meters at the end of the plank, it's got a lever action, which you would find to be very difficult. It's basically lever action because the load is applied eccentric where the reaction is. Yeah, and I did learn that in third form. It's at, uh, I forget the name of the course. It wasn't tech drawing and it wasn't physics. It was something in between. I can't remember what it was called. But Yeah, um, and if you, yeah. If you have two, two forces that don't line up, there will be a bending moment. Sure. And usually it's the bending moments that generate the biggest stresses in the structure. And so most of your dilemmas, aside from uh, uh, some of your colleagues uh, and some of the organisations, most of your concern is around the robustness of the building method applied, the design and, and application of the design and the shortfalls, because we've seen some ser fairly serious um, uh, construction failures, and you've highlighted some of them in some of your notes to us. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk to us about some of those and and the reason why you're so passionate about it? Clearly, uh, as I said in an interview earlier, uh, this in, in the series is um, engineers don't like seeing things that fail. Uh, it's not not in their nature. They want stuff to be uh, robust for for the for the duration. Yes, um, it's not just the design phase of it. It's uh, when I wrote my open letter, it it was not just about structural engineering or structural engineering design. It was about the construction phases from sort of conception through to completion. Um, and to a large extent, engineers and particularly structural engineers are somewhat disadvantaged in that we are a profession which relies on a lot of semi-skilled and unskilled people doing our construction work. So um, the concerns I have um, are, that I've espoused relate to very bad construction practices, but also very bad design practices. Because the thing about engineering is it's not about some sort of theoretical thing you're arguing about. It's actually producing a building, a power plant, a dam, a road, or whatever that works. And it's across the entire spectrum of, say, the building and construction industry that we've got these problems. And it's not just about, um, you know, a, a collapse or the risk of a collapse. It's things like um, reduced durability because of poor construction. The building is going to have serious maintenance issues within say 10 years instead of 50 years, et cetera. And then you also have a problem of, and it's really come to be highlighted in the Christchurch earthquakes and the assessment of damage and repairs. Um, I've spent a lot of my work over the last nine years acting as an expert witness for homeowners with earthquake damaged houses. But I've also had to investigate failed repairs and rebuilds in which the standard of work has been appalling. And the thing isn't going to fall down, but the point is it doesn't meet the code, it's not durable, and the homeowners have had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars seeking redress on it. How many of those have you had to, if you don't mind saying, I don't need you to say anything that's that's um, perhaps confidential, but based on, on that Christchurch earthquake, how many of those cases have you had to sort of adjudicate over? Well, I've been involved in about 170 properties, oh, mainly gosh. dealing with the repairs that are required. But um, 
before the earthquakes, I was involved in an apartment building which was a leaker and had structural deficiencies. This is before the September 2010 earthquake. And then it suffered serious damage in the Christchurch earthquake sequence. And that sort of led through eventually to some other jobs and more and more, et cetera. But um, uh, the rebuild has also highlighted some serious deficiencies. For example, um, you had a building which, after the Royal Commission had the hearings into the CTV building, was built, which had the same fundamental defects as the CTV building and was only identified by some uninterested engineers. And by that, I mean they weren't involved with the, pro the project. They just happened to look at it and say, that can't be right, and that led to retrofits. Um, there is, um, the first building of the rebuild and the actual fact was basically written off in on the 13th of June, 2011. Um, it was supposed to be current code compliant in what Mayor Bob Parker was saying would be um, a rebuild to create the safest city in the world from a seismic perspective because we had no alternative. And yet the first building basically completed after 22nd of February, after a, not an enormous earthquake in that location, it was leaning over at five degrees and had to be demolished and rebuilt. And um, and then more recently in Christchurch, you have the case of 230 High Street, a brand new eight-storey building which has serious deficiencies and will never probably never be occupied. It will have to be demolished. It's, it sounds a huge dilemma, and I, you know, as a layman, I'm still struggling to understand how things can be so so poorly um, delivered. And one thing I've noted in some of your correspondence is that. Uh, in days of old, perhaps when you were just out of university, it may have been that a engineer, a civil engineer, would get perhaps four to six percent, say, of the build value would be or cost would be the engineer's um, design and ongoing input into the build. Now, you're, I think I'm reading where it's below one percent. Is that that sounds like a serious uh, problem? Yeah, I think the rot had set in before I actually started working, but um, there was still a minimum scale of fees which kept fees to a reasonable level. Since then, the actual demands of seismic engineering and other things have increased the demands for design and documentation, um, but uh, fees have tended to be cut, um, so they're often below 1%. One of the examples I became aware of in 1988, and I put it into my open letter of 2002, was a um, a, uh, where a, um, a supermarket building in Canada, which had a steel structure and a concrete roof on top for parking. And the day the building opened, people drove up on the roof and walked down to the main car park on the ground for the grand opening ceremony, rumble, rumble, and the roof collapsed. No one was killed. But um, basically, it collapsed on opening day with nowhere near the design loading on it. And the Royal Commission noted that the design fee was something like 0.15% fees, and that wasn't the lowest tender. And they recommended that structural fees should be the order of 6%, but that is not the case. Whereas I understand in countries like Germany and France, they have maintained high fees but it allows them to maintain their standards. And so what is designed is um, well thought out and buildable, plus they have the skilled workforce to build it. John, you stopped. you're talking of issues you've been aware of since 1988. Your open letter was in 2002, so two decades ago. Has anything changed since then at all? Are you the only person in your profession who's been speaking up about this? Um, I'm largely the only person who speaks openly, but it's not like um, I'm a sole voice. One of the things that has protected me over the years, because initially people tried to get me for writing my open letter, and I made it clear I could defend myself. But the people I respect to be amongst the top engineers in New Zealand support me fully. 
they can't necessarily speak out publicly, but like the top analytical engineer, the top steel engineer, other top engineers have, when needed, been prepared to, to stand up and defend me on that. So would it be safe to say that you're not holding your breath for this latest initiative from MB, their building consents review paper that's out right now? You don't hold out high hopes for uh, any substantial improvements coming from that one? Well, um, if you read it, the, the language it's using is actually regurgitating the nonsense of the late 80s, early 90s, which created so many problems with respect to the leaky building crisis. They're talking about self-certifying. Well, um, you know, the, the, issue, the idea of a peer review where a, another professional reviews a design and says, yes, this is a good design, it's code compliant. That has failed time and time and time again. So why is self-certification going to fix them? It's not going to. And this is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at that paper and I see that MB this morning on the website have extended the submissions from the 7th, the deadline, to the 21st. And they say that this is probably the most comprehensive ever. And they're also adding in more bits from the Green Building Council and all. So the world seems to be tacking on a whole lot of other bits of, should I call it virtue signaling, green buildings and all of this. And yet we can't get the basics right. No, I'd like to um, leave the green side, the green <laughs> side of it aside for the moment. Um, mm -hmm. As far as um, fees and performance and productivity goes, um, in the Western countries, minimum scale of professional fees were done away with in the 80s or early 90s. And it turns out that the sort of um, certain professions, particularly legal, their um, fees have gone sky high since then. But in particularly structural or, or engineering, the fees have um, decreased. And also with the loss of skilled training, which we used to have with the Ministry of Works, New Zealand Electricity Department, Railways, etc., the training base has been eroded as well. And it became so bad in Australia in the early 2000s that the Queensland Division of Engineers Australia did a formal investigation. And they showed that in Queensland, because of a decline in fees and a decline of building, design, documentation, et cetera, because what we do in our drawings is produce basically a roadmap telling people what we want, and it's supposed to um, facilitate competent, efficient construction. The errors and deficiencies in the design documentation were such that they determined that it was adding 10 to 15% of waste and loss to the Queensland construction industry. So there was about two to three billion dollars wasted. Plus, there's a multiplier effect in the economy. And that was back in 2005. Similar studies have been done in Britain. And yet the, the nonsense just carries on. And no one is prepared to do the simple, basic things of reading the Riot Act and enforcing um, proper action to sort it out. Now, as far as MIMBY goes and the current Labour government, and um, they're not much worse than previous national governments. I mean, the only minister who's shown any real interest over the last 21 years was Leanne Dalzell, who received my open letter at the same time that the leaky building crisis was being exposed. And she showed some additional interest in 2012, but um, she lost her portfolio back in 2003. And... Um, I've had, uh, in opposition, the politicians like talking. And so along with some other engineers, I had one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one meetings with people like Grant Robertson, um, David Clark, um, Phil Twyford, Jenny Salisa, et cetera, in opposition. So many people, not in New Zealand First and Labor, were made aware of all of these problems. And yet when they get into government, what do they do? Well, Phil Twyford and others decide that although the house building industry in New Zealand is at full tag and has productivity and quality problems, they will introduce Kiwi Build 
which requires a doubling of the number of houses to be built per year. Well, where were the people going to come from to build these houses? At the time, the entire house building industry was completely committed and they said, right, we'll double the output. It's just ludicrous, and yet they did it. That's a, a government prerogative, isn't it, is to seduce the, the electorate to sort of believe they can deliver on something when they actually have very little practical knowledge of, of what's required. Who advised them, uh, though, John, would have to have been, would have been in my sites that I've been around Wellington. The question I want to ask is, so where's local government and their uh, consenting agents in all of this? Where are they? Well, the local governments were basically set up to be a patsy because in ye old days, um, up until um, the local government reforms of the 90s, of the 80s and early 90s, um, you had, like in Auckland, you had 17 cities and boroughs and, and so on. And they all had a architectural department, a works department, an engineering department. And most of them ran on the smell of an oily rag. And Auckland, um, which was a lot smaller than it is now, had quite an impressive engineering department, architecture department, works department, et cetera. And they had their own building bylaws and so on. Well, in 1991, a national building code was set up and the effectively the local authorities were set up to implement the national building code at the local level. But the, the so-called reforms of the 1980s and early 90s forced these councils to divest themselves of their technical staff who were able to do it. And so um, on the one hand, they were made liable for building consents, et cetera, but they were, um, you know, their ability to set their own bylaws was taken away and they were forced to get rid of their technically competent staff. None of it makes any sense. Yeah. Not for me to want bigger government or more government officials on the, on the planet, but um, it does seem something as basic as, as having the right people in the right place for this job is important. And yet, as I read, it seems that perhaps some of the very best people do get to be uh, seduced into perhaps private enterprise where they... Uh, want to set up their own construction firms or, or be part of a construction firm, and then they become almost judge and jury over their own build. Is that, that's me just making a off-the-cuff assessment. Is, is that something that can be substantiated? Yeah, the um, issue of um, New Zealand contractors and building contractors, et cetera, um, I think there are problems that go back to 1967, 1968, with um, the building downturn and the carpenters' union pushing for redundancy that led to contractors getting rid of their skilled staff. But we have the farce that in 2008, Shane Jones, as the minister, organised a talk fest in Auckland um, to try and raise the productivity in the building and construction industry. And productivity is highly linked to quality. You do things once, you get it right, and you move on. The idea that you either have productivity or quality is completely wrong. And when the Germans and the Japanese were getting it right, they understood that you have high quality, which is productivity. So in 2008, they organized a talk fest in Auckland of about 84 invited people, including people from the prime minister's office. But strangely, I was not given an invitation. And they um, had a discussion on how to raise the productivity in the New Zealand building and construction industry. And they set up a committee to report back. And that committee um, included either the chief executives or the deputy chief executives of some of the biggest commercial construction companies, it included representatives of some of the biggest house building companies. And they produced a report of about 38 pages, and in it, only one paragraph was worth anything. It was just nonsense. And the question that I would ask is if these big contractors and these big house builders knew how to solve the quality and productivity problems, 
why hadn't they done it with their own within their own companies and within their, their subcontractors and suppliers? Because if they had done that, they would have raised the standards throughout the entire industry. So um, some millions of government of taxpayer money was set up to create this um, task force, and they set up a, a logo, and it was 20 by 2020. So um, within 12 years, they were going to raise productivity by 20%. And after about six years, they got nowhere and they disbanded it. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. And yet it's absolutely stock standard for what goes on in New Zealand. And when um, my open letter in 2002 was one of the two drivers for reform and the politicians took a politician's approach and they decided they would rewrite the building act and basically it was all written by bureaucrats and their solution was to set up a new government department and i told these uh, politicians that you're setting up a government department that is devoid of technical competence and they did they set up the department of building and housing which was almost completely devoid of technical competence and um they had like a chief engineer, but there was actually no one under him. And that carried on for about 12 years or so when it got absorbed into MIMBY. You've got these people in charge of regulating the building and construction industry who basically don't know anything. They'll come up with policy statements, but they don't know how to implement. Each time you say MIMBY, I don't know why the word NIMBY pops into my head, John, but I'll look past this. You mentioned 230 High Street, Christchurch. So I looked it up. I I wonder who's the fall guy in this. I, looking at the details of this, as RNZ reported, a property developer is suing Christchurch City Council for $19 million over a blighted office block it, it wants to demolish. Claims and counterclaims have been flying over 230 High Street because they say the building poses risk to adjacent pedestrian walkways and users, neighboring properties, and so on. The council states, the external engineer, and this is where you said that, you know, the in-house teams went and you now are relying on external people. The council, Christchurch Council, stated that WSP, the external engineers relied on, spent only two hours reviewing the superstructure's design and less than two hours each on amended designs. Who's the fall guy here? One would think that, just like crime, for which we seem to have no repercussions right now, if the heavy hand of law was coming on onto, you know, the they were being faced with some sort of serious, serious reparations here, this thing would stop. Does nothing happen? Do these firms not get held liable enough to stop them doing this? Well, sorry, the peer reviewers for 230 High Street wasn't mm. WSP. It was another company. Okay. Uh, and, and the man involved was a fellow of engineering New Zealand. Um, and um, it was actually, the problems were actually discovered by a graduate engineer walking home one Saturday night after going to the pub. And he just looked up and said, that can't, connection can't be right and asked the question of his employer. He wasn't involved with the project. And his employers in a completely independent firm asked a few questions, and it snowballed from there. But one of the problems, of course, is that any of these problems leads to litigation, and the costs are horrific. Now, one thing I will say of um, Jeanette Fitzsimons, she got it right once when she talked about when a oil tanker crashes into the shore and you spend a billion dollars cleaning up the mess, that counts as a billion dollars of economic activity and goes to you know, growth and GDP, when obviously it isn't. Well, we're getting rich by building deficient houses and buildings and the lawsuits, because if you build, say, a house competently and it costs $400,000, that's $400,000 of economic activity. But if it's a stuff up, there will probably be about a million dollars of lawyers involved in the lawsuit and then payments, say, from the council to demolish and rebuild. So you might have $2 million of economic activity instead of 400000 But I don't think we're getting rich that way. We would be far better off if we just built the house right in the first place and maybe with um, 
affordable building materials and productivity, it would cost 300,000. So we've got this problem too of even in, in um, situations like the um, so supposedly low-cost weather-tight homes uh, tribunal or the Canterbury Earthquakes Insurance Tribunal, homeowners are spending 100 to 200,000, defendants are spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands. It's far better for society to pay some more money and get it designed right and constructed right. But the waste of public money um, goes across to the polytechnics and the um, uh, apprenticeship schemes. I mean, the apprenticeship schemes were done away with stupidly in the early 1990s. They haven't been rebuilt. We had the government departments, which were a great source of training of engineers and technicians and draftsmen and tradesmen. Private industry really benefited from that. They were all done away with. And a critical thing, if I had my way, um, we would reinstitute proper apprenticeship schemes and the polytechnics would be ordered to basically support those proper schemes. They would not be businesses. If they had to shrink by 50%, but get back to basics, that's what they would do. Because the only reason for having polytechnics is to support proper trade training. And New Zealand used to have world-class trade training, perhaps not quite as good as Germany, but not far off it. And yet by 2005, New Zealand largely stopped sending apprenticeships to international competition because they couldn't upgrade. Gosh. And I, I, I I, sorry, I don't want to make it appear as if, every, you know, I get criticised for claiming that everyone is incompetent. No, we have excellent people, and I know excellent, really young people. I know one excellent apprentice who was actually running a complicated job and did it very well. And we have lots of people who want the training, but the trouble is that quality needs to be down at the bottom 5% or even down at the bottom 0%. We've basically got to always get these things right, and there's no reason why we can't. I took another look, uh, John, at the RNZ article, and the owner of that 230 High Street is some Hung Sun Kim and Rockwell Development. Is that the same uh, we were talking about, Christchurch High Street property? Well, I don't know the. Yeah, it, I think it's a Korean owner and Rockwell Development, and they are blaming the council, and the council is blaming WSP that we relied on them. So I don't think it's a direct connection, but indirectly, that's whom the council says that it was let down. But in uh, any yeah, but case, sorry, sorry, mm -hmm. wait, wait. there was a structural engineer who actually did the design, and then mm -hmm. it went out for peer review by a firm, another firm, and mm -hmm. um, you know, there's other examples. You know, there's been major stadia. One of the things, too, is people put the blame on um, developers, and developers were a problem, and a big loss was the loss of Clark of Works because it used to be you would have a Clark of Works on most projects who would look at, you know, um, they would authorise payments, but they'd maintain, they'd be on-site all the time inspecting and maintaining qualities. Um, developers got rid of those. But as I showed in my open letter, and in many of the examples since then, the worst examples are blue chip, supposedly blue chip buildings designed by blue chip firms for blue chip clients done by blue chip contractors. And yet disaster was just averted by good fortune, not good management. Unbelievable. No. Unbelievable. Seriously. Yes, and you would think engineers, engineering is such a logical branch. These are people who are able to think laterally and yet you have these issues. But perhaps where, where would you lay the blame, John? In most bigger organizations, they say the tone is always set at the top. So is it the regulatory bodies? Um, again, it's across the board. Um, certainly, um, I would put the biggest blame actually at structural engineers as a profession, because if every structural engineer was prepared to say, I'm not going to put up with this crap, we're going to stop it, it wouldn't have happened. I mean, one sort of related example was in after I wrote my open letter, um, certain authorities were out to get me for having dared write my open letter. 
and I was going to be convicted of breaching ethics and all of this crap by um, actually writing it. Well, I wasn't being judged against the code of ethics. It was against some guidelines which were completely inappropriate. For example, IPENS, it was called at the time, didn't have a form like Form 252. Write in if you think the structural engineering profession is stuffed. They didn't have one. And I had to basically um, use a bit of, um, I had to sort of call a spade a spade because that's what the situation required. But at about the same time, a young doctor at Auckland Hospital spoke out and he he was, um, you know, the authorities there could have gone after him. And all the other junior doctors said, if you go after him, we're out on strike. Well, basically, when I spoke out, I looked around and I was basically standing alone, except a few people, a, a very small number of top engineers did support me behind the scenes, but it was up to me to take that stand. So that brings us on to your industry bodies. Now, there's, there was IPENS, now ENZ, and I think there was one other, uh, plus you've got CSOC. Uh, could you just give us the wiring diagram, how they all work? Uh, well, if you go back um, to the 80s and 90s, there used to be a New Zealand Institution of Engineers or Institute of Engineers, and it was all the different disciplines of engineering. And uh, they would have various magazines and you would uh, there would be technical articles and members could get letters published and so on. But then by the late 90s, early 2000s, um, it, it, a, a shift occurred where Engineering New Zealand, or IPENS at the time, basically said, we will deal with the ethical and professional standards, but the technical stuff will be farmed off to affiliated technical societies. So you have like the New Zealand Society of Earthquake Engineering, the Structural Engineering Society, the New Zealand Geotechnical Society, and all of these other societies to deal with other branches like electrical and mechanical, et cetera. And I think that's wrong because you can't separate in any profession like medicine or engineering, you can't, or architecture, you can't separate the ethical from the technically competent. They're intertwined. Intertwined. Yeah, all right. So I, I've read quite a few letters that have gone to and fro, but I'd love to read, listeners, your introduction of your open letter, just to sort of covers covers everything that we've talked about to this point, but I'll just sort of cover it again. This letter seeks to make IPENS aware of the appalling state of the structural engineering profession and construction industry in New Zealand and proposes practical steps urgently required to address the situation. The widespread low standards of technical competence, unprofessional and irresponsible behaviour by leading structural engineers and territorial authorities and commercial realities are such that structural engineering in New Zealand is about to become the first profession in the modern world that will cease to become, cease to be a profession. That's pretty harsh stuff, John. And here we are 21 years on and you're still fighting the fight. And I've, so so this is a bit, bit of a long um, overview. I've also read a letter uh, response to you from your CSOC group back to you in 2020. And it is, uh, as I often observe in the farming lobbies, it talks about if we do not speak with a unified voice, we we risk being ignored. Uh, shades of being muzzled in here, I would suggest, John, that they don't want you to be speaking as you've been speaking, even if the safety of the community is at risk. Yeah, the structural engineering profession as a whole has enormous power, as do all other professional bodies. I mean, again, this idea, and it's really coming to a head if I can get into the wider social thing. Hmm. Um, although, you know, New Zealand follows the English sort of constitutional position, but the simple fact is the people have the power and authority and, and sovereignty. And, and politicians are only there to do our bidding. They are our employees. And, um, and uh, a classic example of that is Morris Williamson. Now, 
To his credit, when Morris Williamson got made the minister in 2008, um, he agreed to meet a group of engineers, including me, in his electorate office in Pakaranga. And Jamie Lee Ross, who was his electorate chairman at the time, was there as well. And um, what is quite shocking is if anybody, anyone bothers to read the briefing to an incoming minister on any subject, um, in 2008, the briefing from the Department of Building and Housing to Morris Williamson basically said, oh, leaky buildings are a relatively minor and historic problem. Well, at that time, it was like a billion dollars. Now it's admitted to be tens of billions of dollars. And didn't mention anything about the stadia that had almost collapsed or anything like that. I mean, the main thing on these briefings are, you are the minister. This is this department. We need X millions a year to operate. It is your job to get it for us. No, it is your job to represent the interests of the people. So we had that meeting, and before I spoke, what other people there were telling them, had them pounding, fist pounding the table saying, why aren't these people in prison? I'm going to get to the bottom of it, blah, 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 blah. Well, he walked out and apparently went to the likes of Engineering New Zealand and others, and they said, no, 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 uh, no problems, it's all crap. Oh, okay. And so he took them at their word and did nothing. And um, so um, after the Christchurch earthquakes, I was on close-up with him, in 2012, and um, Mark Sainsbury asked me, uh, he basically said, we can't take uh, John Scarry's word for it. Um, you know, there's a big organisation, all these people with, what did he say, um, letters after their name longer than the Russian alphabet, except people like that told him of these problems in the meeting. And he said, and then later on, um, uh, Mark Sainsbury asked what I wanted Morris Williamson to do, and I said, I want him to resign. And Sainsbury asked Morris Williamson, would he resign? And he said, no, but I'll give John Scarry this. If the main engineering bodies say that he's right, we'll have to give him what he wants. There will be no alternative. The government would have to admit it. So if CSOC, for example, and, and at the time, CSOC could have said there are major issues. We need serious reform across the industry. They wouldn't. but. If CSOC came out and said these things, because they are the recognised technical professional body to Engineering New Zealand, Engineering New Zealand would have nowhere to hide. They'd have to agree. And the government would have to agree, and we could get those ref that reform. But instead, as you would have read, you get this nonsense of, it's better to be on the bridge of the super tanker of state talking to the captain then flailing around in the water, achieving nothing. It's garbage. Well, it is garbage. And I see here in this response by the five people that wrote to your, your letter in that journal, it said, our challenge to you is to question yourself often and regularly to ensure you are living and breathing the quality and professional standards that we all must aspire to. Well, isn't that them sort of shooting themselves in the foot and trying they're trying to chastise you in this sector here section here but clearly that for 20 years of an action you would actually have to say that that was the pot calling the kettle black yes and um as i i pointed out to morris williamson um you've got the government will go and talk to the so-called you know, chief executives of this company or that company or whatever. And we're not perfect, and all of us will make mistakes. But basically, the, the, the people that they recognise as authorities, everyone knows full well that these companies have designed shocker after shocker after shocker, and they don't have any bloody, um, uh, you know, like just decency to, you know, to not be hypocritical. You know, it. it if you if you don't want to be hypocritical, shut up. But these people, uh, these companies are designing shockers, but then denying them. And if you look at the list that I've written, no one can look at that and say there aren't very, very serious problems. And these are just the ones that I know about, because most of them are secret after settlements and things like that. And it's it's absolutely acknowledged that the New Zealand building and construction industry has low productivity. And yet, um, 
politicians don't care. They, you know, again, politicians are supposed to come up with policies that are a benefit to the country. And yet I know ones who know there are serious problems and they say, we're not going to have a policy because there's no votes in it. Well, I think long-term, if you actually show you're representing the interests of the people long-term, you will get those votes. And one of the fundamental things, socially, economically, et cetera, is having a a reform of the proper apprenticeship schemes. But I do not know one political party that actually acknowledges it or is committed to it. Well, that's a sad indictment on on the system. And as a taxpayer of... Yeah, a long-suffering taxpayer, I want the foundations of this country to be well um, established and and steady. And sadly, we don't seem to have any willingness to make sure that occurs. Um, we're, and I know we're going to talk today about uh, climate, but you know, I can't resist. Uh, we're seeing the same stuff, even when the IPCC is saying uh, that there's not the risk that we're told there is uh, around sea level rise or, or or the like. We've still got our entities willing to put us under the bus at huge cost to the country. And I have read a letter, perhaps it's not supposed to be in my hand, uh, that states that the Minister Ministry for the Environment just doesn't want to acknowledge it because it's all too hard to wind it back. That is a, that is a scandal that needs to be um, sort of acknowledged. And it's similar. If you can draw, I'm drawing a parallel with your issue. Um, you can't have these entities not representing the taxpayer, the citizen, with on points of principle when they know what they're doing is not is not on solid foundations. And so, um, I, how much more of this can we take? I mean, what's your next plan of action on this, um, John? Just more of the same. Keep keep pushing the boat out and try. Well, I don't want it to make it, I mean, basically, I'm not doing anything more. And the reason is, you know, as we will discuss, I'm sure, in the next interview, if you give me one, I am completely censored on critical issues. But um, the absolute stupidity of all of these things, if I can quickly run through just how important building and construction and structural is. And Absolutely. obviously, you need, um, you know, in, oh, sorry, Brian Leyland, who you head on. Now, one thing I'll say about Brian, um, you know, this thing about censorship and everything. Brian and I got to know each other through the same organisation that I got to know Don through, the Climate Change Coalition, Climate Science Coalition. And Brian and I have absolute humdinger arguments. So we will be going backwards and forwards, not personal, but so on. And then someone will intervene and say, "This is getting nowhere. It's you know, um, you know, it's it, um, um, you know, creating you know bad air or whatever." And so we'll stop. But the next day, he will take my phone call, or I will answer his email because he's interested in a good argument. And Brian will tell me he actually puts out things he drafts for people to critique because he wants to know whether he's made a mistake. And one of the strengths of the Western society and free speech is that you're actually able to test things just like prototyping an aircraft or whatever, and you can actually arrive at the best solution. Now, um, in the building and construction sector, oh, sorry, the thing about Brian is, he pointed out that Engineering New Zealand a few years ago spent quite a few tens of thousands of dollars asking, I think it was PricewaterhouseCoopers, to determine the value of engineering to the New Zealand economy. How important was it? And they came up and said, oh, it's the second most important sector after tourism. But without um, the engineering sector, you can't have any tourism. Oh, gosh. And, and like, for example, agriculture and fishing forestry, rural land development, urban land development, land transport, sea transport, air transport, electricity, fuel, telecommunications, water supply, national defence, wholesale, retail, um, food distribution, food storage, health sector, education, housing, disaster resilience, and sports and entertainment. These are all facilities done by structural engineers were essential. Now, back prior to the 2020 election, the National Party 
produced a series of glossy um, policy documents. And there were four that caught my eye. One was on the economy. The other, another one was infrastructure and transport. And then they had uh, a, one on housing and building and construction. And if they had lots of um, glossy photographs, and if you ignore all the photographs of the politicians, every photograph had at least one, if not two, if not six fields of engineering in it, because the entire economy and infrastructure and transport and housing is all on engineering. But in those um, four documents, the word engineer was only mentioned once. And you even had the statement on the economic side was, was that we will have a, a highly performing economy and as a result, we will have high productivity. Uh, no, you need the high productivity and the value adding to have the high performing economy. It's as simple as that. And these people don't get it. Well, they would have had their diversity, equity, and inclusion um, stuff oh. in there as well, no doubt. Oh, no, no, <laughs> had, no, no, that hadn't come at that stage. But the other thing, too, is you know, they talk about high productivity, but the New Zealand building and construction industry is so large, until you deal with the, um, the low productivity in it, you can't, it's a drag on the entire economy. And it's also, um, you know, uh, an enormous opportunity because if we had the proper training, and one of the problems we've got now is do we have enough skilled people to provide the training on the job? But there's a lot of, you know, disadvantaged youth, et cetera, who would benefit greatly from these apprenticeships, and we would benefit from the apprenticeships as well. And in the old days of the excellent apprenticeship schemes, they also had the Maori apprenticeship schemes, with, which got lots of Maori into the middle class, although a lot of them then headed off to Australia to um, make more money out of it. So again, none of it makes any sense. And if you just look at it from fundamental basics, you've got to address these basic issues of skilled people doing a job competently, doing it once, doing it right, and getting on with it. So that was the National Party that uh, put out that in uh, pre the 2020 election. But in 2019, the 28th of February, you wrote to the Prime Minister and the uh, Right Honourable Winston Peters and asked them to please intervene to stop the mismanagement of the building and construction sector relating and related training and do what is required to save them. What was the upshot? Well, the Prime Minister um, didn't even, like, at least when I wrote to Helen Clark asking for her minister to be fired, she at least wrote, signed a letter back. But Jacinda Ardern got an offside to send an email saying the Prime Minister has noted your concerns. And one of the fundamental things, of course, was the Minister, Jenny Salisa, um, had no... Um, now, again, building and construction is enormously important. And the thing with her was she had that in another portfolio, but she was also the Assistant Minister of Health and Education. Now, the reading to be the Assistant Minister or Deputy Minister of Health and Education is such, how could anyone keep up with what's going on in building construction? And so Adun ignored me, but then a while later, she fired Jenny Salisa for failure to, to do anything, but then replaced her with another minister who hasn't done any better either. I am very surprised. Jacinda Ardern had sworn that we were going to be the first country in the world to have the United Nations, uh, you know, SDGs in our legislation. SDG 11 is safe, sustainable, resilient cities. How are we doing on those stakes? Not very really good by what you are telling us, John. Well, you could also look at child poverty. Again, having productive, um, uh, you know, high-paying, skilled jobs is is the essential way to get children out of poverty. It's not giving benefits to the family. It's creating a, a value-adding, high-growth, productive economy where ordinary people can get a decent income, where they can raise their children to a decent standard, as we used to have as a basically the norm in New Zealand. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're a long way from it. So just... Uh, for my um, uh, knowledge, really, 
the Southland Stadium that collapsed, uh, I think it was 2011, 2010, sorry, 2010. Uh, it was a sort of, they said it was a heavy snow. It was sort of, uh, the snow was wetter than normal and it was a lot heavier than normal. Um, my son-in-law, by the way, was the second last person out that day and he was not very happy with the noises of um, shearing bolts uh, all around him. Tell me, was that a fault that has been replicated elsewhere in New Zealand? And, and the fault was, I gather, around some welding that was deficient or not enough welding. Was was that replicated anywhere else? Well, before I get onto that, it's interesting to note that I was interviewed um, on national radio shortly after that, and someone from uh, IPENS was on as well. And that person raised climate, and he said, it's thought that climate change may have played a role. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, in actual fact, my understanding of it, and I stand to be corrected, is that when it was being erected in 1999, under just the self-weight, the reef trusses were deflecting excessively. And that led to an investigation, and there were a lot of design deficiencies. And in order to deal with the excess deflection of these reef trusses, they actually cut through them, cropped them and cut right through them, backed them up and re-welded them back together. But they didn't remove the roofing, which meant they couldn't actually get in and do welds around these hollow sections. And my reading of the official report, and it was, it was very smart uh, that we, what was done, is the engineers investigating replicated one of these joints and tested it, you know, with a good weld on the bottom of this hollow section. Um, reasonable welds up the side and no weld across the top. They pulled on it, worked out its strength and back calculated. And my recollection is they said the snow load was 0.3 kPa. Now, any building in Whangarei and in Kaitaia that is not designed for snow load has to be designed for a live load of 0.25 kPa. So that didn't come into play as far as I'm aware. Now, in Europe, they do have a problem where when you have snow on a roof for months at a time, the lower level of snow actually melts and refreezes as ice. So instead of being, let's say, a metre of fluffy, low-weight snow, it's actually 600 millimetres of ice, and then the thing comes down. But pre, you know, at the time when the then minister was telling me I didn't know what I was talking about, a stadium was being erected in Auckland where. Um, there were problems with it, and it was subsequently found that at the main support points, the the connections were overstressed 900% on the design loads. The thing was deflecting markedly under a quarter of the self-weight of the roof. And then two years later, another uh, large stadium came within a hair's breadth of total collapse and was only saved by a miraculous set of circumstances. And but for a miraculous set of circumstances, that roof could have collapsed. And that's just under self-weight. There's no snow on it or no wind or anything, just under the self-weight. So, and um, just one thing about that, uh, the stadium in 2004 is talking about the main connection. Um, Maureen Pugh, who gets, uh, who, who's been attacked you know, relatively recently, well, um, when she was a mayor in 2009, she arranged for me to give a speech to a meeting of all the mayors of New Zealand, ironically in Christchurch and in Cathedral Square. And um, and uh, back about 2018 or 19, I, when she was in opposition, I contacted her and had a meeting and it was for an hour, but she basically talked for about two hours. And I, as an example, I, I showed her this main connection in the roof and asked her what mechanism would fail by. I gave her a little hint, but she got it in one. And she said, well, if I can see it, why can't the structural engineers? Mm -hmm. And obviously many structural engineers would. And I said, well, if they could, I wouldn't be here. So, um, you know, there was one person from a, a part of New Zealand where common sense is still quite common and whose husband is a builder. And, you know, she could just use some common sense to see a serious problem that the design engineer and the peer reviewer in the council couldn't see. Unbelievable. I chose, I chose not to see. Mm. 
So just uh, one other point, uh, it's often brought up in discussions with my mates is, uh, oh, these new uh, rate earthquake ratings have just got out of hand and, you know, the, the poor landlord, poor landowners or property owners around Invercargill just can't maintain them, can't bring them up to code, there's no money in it, can't get tenants in them, uh, so basically they're going to stay empty for forever. Uh, what's your thoughts about the earthquake codes and the, the re-strengthening that was required under the new um, codes post-2011. It seems to have had quite a large effect on especially marginal properties around our city. Well, far be it from me to be an expert in commercial law <laughs> and so on and taxation, but don't building owners get depreciation where basically the value of the building is written off over time on the basis that it will have to be replaced. Uh, yeah. Now, um, the first of all, it's it's not about building, bringing things up to code. The, the earthquake-prone building legislation, and I don't agree with it, it's basically just about stopping the collapse of a building in a moderate earthquake, which is defined as a, an earthquake of one-third the horizontal, effectively the horizontal accelerations of um, what you would be designing a new building to. It is not saying, because a building is, is not earthquake prone, it doesn't say that it's safe. It could suffer catastrophic collapse at, say, 50% of a new building. Thing. And also, people talk about, you know, 34% NBS new building standard. It isn't that, because when you design a new building, you have to apply certain strength reduction factors and you have to base it on the lower five percentile strengths. When you're assessing an existing building, you're allowed to take probable strengths, you don't have reduction factors, and you're allowed to consider all sorts of mechanisms that we don't allow in new buildings. So when you hear about one third, no, 33 or 34% NBS, it's actually at best equivalent to about 24% of a new building design. And so really, and 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 again, um, that wasn't introduced after the Canterbury earthquakes. It was introduced in 2004, which is almost 20 years ago. And people have bought, until relatively recently, they have bought apartment buildings and commercial buildings without even thinking about this. And well, you know, again, I think something needed to be done and, and the strengthening is moderate and I don't, uh, I can't object to it. But the important thing is for people to realize it's not about things being safe or not safe. It's a gradation. And all it's trying to do is prevent total collapse in a moderate earthquake, nothing more. Well, th thank you for that explanation, because it's certainly, uh, well, it's refreshed. Perhaps I didn't know it absolutely, but it's refreshed uh, for me, the, the requirements. So, yeah. I, I so wanted to ask, thing, John, do structural engineers, do they carry personal liability insurance individually? Yeah, they um, most, well, yes, they have, um, you're not, I can't admit to having it, but engineers <laughs> have um, uh, professional indemnity insurance. But the question is, you know, how much do you have and and so on. But the simple fact is, if everyone was doing their job right, we wouldn't need it. Uh, similarly, um, uh, it, you know, the, this thing about building codes and regulations and laws if the professions and the trades were doing their job properly and ethically, all you would need would be a code to quantify things, but mm. not to sort of lay down the law or whatever. And it just gets so, you know, things are getting so complicated now. And um, the documentation is just getting out of whack and I think in many ways we'd be far better off by reducing the number of per you you can in New Zealand you can just about because we don't actually have strict um, enforcement of particular approved systems you can basically do a mix and match on all sorts of different things supposedly in the interests of economics yeah. and you also can have like umpteen different types of cladding systems with or without cavities, umpteen different types of window systems, and we're a population of 5 million, and yet everyone demands 
you know, in every sort of tap and fitting that you can get everywhere in the world, I think we would be far better off and far more efficient if we reduced the number of permutations and combinations and got things right and did it. For example, we used to have timber-framed houses which had eaves and weatherboards and wooden window framing, and it seemed to work, and everyone knew how to do it. So why not have that as the standard? What you will have now is what might be perfectly adequate cavity cladding systems and different reefing systems and aluminium glazing systems. But you have specifications that are 250 or 500 pages, and I cannot, um, and 50 drawings, and I cannot understand how anyone can follow any of it. No. And as you were saying that, uh, it almost reminded me of, you know, choosing a platter for a morning tea shout, what do we put on, what do we not? And I'd rather the, you know, what's on offer be restricted. But uh, I think, thank you so much for your time today, John. And I think we'll have to get you back another time. We definitely have to, so that we can discuss where the profession has headed. You've told us all the directions where it has not headed. And uh, there is a whole lot of things between climate change, the diversity agendas, and so on, that the profession seems to be excelling at. Yeah, yes, and, um... and, and the introduction, <laughs> in, in the introduction, I, I accused uh, or made the, the observation, you're the fly in the ointment uh, for some of the the engineering fraternity. Well, um, sorry, before, I, before you go, uh, I think it's important that you continue being the fly in the ointment, John, and putting your case because citizens of this country and investors need to know that that what they construct is adequate and uh all power to you thank you um thank you so. yeah um i think it was at waterloo um napoleon sent a marshal called grouchy off with thirty thousand men to intercept the prussians and keep them away while he tried to defeat the british and he was just wandering around aimlessly and one of his subordinates said why don't you march to the sound of the guns? Well, what I would say is that engineering and structural engineering in particular can hear the sound of the guns over here and they actually turn around and walk in the opposite direction to all of this nonsense that we may talk about at some future. <laughs> well, that's a great line. Good, well done. And thanks for coming on, uh, RCR Greenwashed, uh, John. It's been fabulous having you on. And uh, as Jasper says, we're getting you back. Yeah, right. we look Thank forward you. to this next week. That was a great analogy, John. Thank you. Right. You're welcome. Goodbye. Jasper Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio.